Section 1 of the Quatrains of Omar Khayyam of Nishapur Translated by John Payne Introduction, Part 1 Read by Algy Pug The city of Nishapur, in the north of Khorasan, at present a collection of poor-looking houses built of unburnt bricks and standing in the midst of ruins, said to cover a circuit of some twenty-five miles, contains few relics of its ancient splendour, beyond a couple of mosques and vast bazaars, now, for the most part, untenanted. The number of its inhabitants is variously stated at from 8,000 to 15,000. It stands in a level plain, nearly surrounded by mountains, and is encompassed by villages and gardens, filled with flourishing fruit trees, up to a radius of nine or ten miles in every direction. The neighbourhood is extremely fertile, producing, in particular, exquisite fruits, and the soil is so rich that the mountains and hills are cultivated up to the very summit. The climate is said to be delicious, and, on the whole, the district is considered the pleasantest and most habitable part of Khorasan, although there is but the trace left of the magnificent irrigation works founded by Shahpur and his successors, and the city itself has never recovered from the ravages of Genghis Khan and his Tatar hordes in the middle of the 13th century, when it was sacked and burned and the inhabitants put to the sword or carried off into slavery. The mines in the adjacent hills, said to produce the finest turquoises in the world, are still worked, and the fact that the great caravan route between India and Persia passes through Nishapur, has no doubt operated to prevent the complete decay of the once flourishing town. However, if we go back some eight or nine hundred years to the eleventh century of our era, we find Nishapur at the zenith of its splendour and prosperity, under the beneficent and enlightened rule of the Seljuk sultans of Persia. The capital of the great province of Khorasan, the Stead of the Sun, as Abu Fida interprets its name, Kur Azan, the focus of Persian culture and the central point of the world's intellectual activity, rivalled only by the Caliphate of Cordova, at a time coeval with the latter Saxon kings of England, when Europe was plunged in almost total intellectual darkness, it appears to have been the most important town of medieval Persia, and Oriental geographers, such as Nasir Kusrao, Ibn Halkul and Abu Fida rank it as the third greatest city of the East, inferior only to such metropolitan towns as Baghdad and Cairo. The geographer Yakut el Himawi says that it was the most flourishing, the richest, and the most populous city of the earth, that by its situation it was the vestibule of the Orient and the rendezvous of all the caravans and the Persian poets and prose writers never tire of extolling the beauty of its climate and its environs. According to them, nothing can equal the freshness of its mornings, the perfume of its roses, and the abundance of its crystalline waters. The poet Katibi describes himself as coming, like Attar, from the rose-land of Nishapur, which was indeed celebrated for its vast rose-gardens and the excellence of the otto distilled from their flowers. And another poet, the celebrated Enweri, declares that if paradise is to be found on the face of the earth, 
it is in Nishapur. If not there, it exists not. The Nushul ul Mishtak, a geographical dictionary or gazetta of the twelfth century, speaks of the fields about the city as being covered with violets, jessamine, iris, and nenophar. And other geographers tell us that on entering the town, one smelt a delicious fragrance from the gardens and orchards which surrounded it. Beshshari calls the district of Nishapur a delectable one, and says that its orchards and gardens produced dates, olives, almonds, lemons, oranges, walnuts, figs, jujube plums, locust beans, sugar cane, lote fruit, violets, jessamine, and all manner of other fruits and flowers in profusion. A crowd of watercourses threaded the gardens without its walls, which are described as being so extensive and so continuous that one might travel for days in the shade of their trees. Ibn Halkul says that its suburbs were full of fountains, the water for which was conveyed to them by an underground stream, falling into cisterns and reservoirs without the town. And the adjacent gardens and meadows were irrigated by subterranean canals, said to have been no less than twelve thousand in number, and by a system of wells sunk at short intervals and communicating with each other, the ruins of which are yet, as we learn from Sir John Malcolm and other travellers, to be seen in the neighbouring fields, as well as by a considerable stream called the Seca or Segaware, which supplied the neighbouring villages. In all Khorasan, continues the Arabian geographer, there is no place blessed with a purer or more temperate air. And indeed, the climate of Nishapur is stated on all hands to have been delicious and its fertility amazing, it being particularly celebrated for its melons, said to be the finest in Persia. Cotton was largely grown in its neighbourhood, and it was famous for its rope works and its manufactories of caps, leather, silken, and linen stuffs, which, says Nasir Khusrau, were held in such esteem that they sent them to all parts of the world. A notable feature of the town was its vast bazaars, especially that for the sale of saddlery, always a favourite object of rich and artistic ornamentation with the natives of the East. And it is well known that the stamped and perfumed leathers of Khorasan vied with those of Cordova in the markets of the Middle Ages. The place is variously stated to have contained from two to four hundred thousand inhabitants, and to have occupied a space of a parasang, about four miles, square, enclosed within strongly fortified walls, it being a frontier fortress and exposed to continually recurring attacks by the wild border tribes. It is said to have boasted eight great colleges, founded by the Abbasid caliphs of Baghdad, the nominal, more spiritual and temporal, suzerains of Khorasan, many mosques and thirteen libraries, one of which, that of the Cathedral Mosque, is estimated to have possessed over five thousand volumes, a large number for those ante-typographical times, and was especially renowned for its ulema, or men of learning, a title which comprises theologians, grammarians, poets, mathematicians, historians and writers, and lecturers upon every branch of literature and science, and particularly upon questions of divinity and Quranic exegesis, the exposition of the traditions of the prophet,
the Sunnah, or Lex Non Scripta of Islam, and the canons of the Mohammedan law, long lists of whom, as natives or inhabitants of Nishapur and its district, are to be found in Persian works of geography and history. Among the ulema of Nishapur, in the first half of the 11th century, one of the most illustrious was the Imam Muafek ed Din, a famous expositor of the Quran and teacher of the traditions and of Mohammedan jurisprudence. In the words of the Wasaya, or last words of the famous Nizam ul Mulk, the Imam Muafek of Nishapur was of the great doctors of divinity of Khorasan and much honoured and blessed and it was a generally received opinion that every youth who read the Qur'an and expounded the traditions before him attained to fortune and prosperity. The imam was then some eighty-five years old and was considered the great exemplar of the followers of the Sunnah, or orthodox Muslims. Among his promising pupils were three young men of equal age and talents, Hassan ibn Ali ibn Ishaq Tuzi, the son of a man of good family, and the landed proprietor or country gentleman of Radhigan near Tus in Khorasan, afterwards famous under the title of Nizam ul Mulk, Giyathadin ibn el Feth Umer ibn Ibrahim el Kiyami, better known as Omar Kiyam, and Hassan ibn Ali ibn Sabeh er Raksi, the son of a man of some position but doubtful reputation, and a native of Ray in Persian Iraq afterwards infamous under the style of Old Man of the Mountain, as the head of the sect of the Ismailians, otherwise the Hishashiya or Hassaniyah, of one of which two latter words, the English name of assassins, applied to the murderous horde in question, is believed to be a corruption. Omar Kayam, to give him his familiar name, was a native of Nishapur, or of the homonymous district but the other two had been sent to Nishapur especially to attend the courses of the renowned professor. Hassan Tuzi, from whose Wesaya these particulars are gleaned, appears to have been the imam's favourite pupil, and quickly formed an intimacy with the two others, who were, he says, endowed with excellence of understanding and strength of natural genius to the utmost of perfection. Hassan Esseba and Omar Kayam, he continues, clapped up a friendship with me, and whenas I used to come forth of the imam's assembly, that is, out of his public lecture room, they were wont to join themselves to my company, and we fell into the habit of rehearsing with one another the lecture we had just heard. One day the vile wretch, as he very justly calls Ibn Seba, said to me and to Kayam, it is a matter of general notoriety that the pupils of the imam Muafik commonly attain to fortune. Now, there is no doubt that, if we do not all three attain thereto, one of us will assuredly do so. And that being the case, what manner condition and covenant is there between us? Quoth we, whatsoever thou commandest. And he, then let us make a compact, that whatsoever fortune may be vouchsafed unto any one of us, shall be equally shared by him with the others, that the owner of the good shall give himself no preference in the division. So be it, rejoined we, and a mutual compact to that effect was accordingly entered into between us. Hassan Tusi goes on to relate 
that he passed four years under the tuition of the Imam Muifik Eddin, at the end of which time, having, as we may conclude, perfected himself, not only in Quranic and traditional exegesis and jurisprudence, but also in the other sciences and branches of learning and accomplishments comprised under the head of Edeb, or breeding, a word which includes all the parts of instruction necessary to the education of a gentleman and a man of the world, he left Nishapur and entered what we should call the civil service, in which he had an hereditary footing, his father being governor of his native district of Radigan. He appears to have betaken himself first to Transoxiana and to have entered the service of the Gesnevide Sultan Maudud, A.D. 1041-1049, to whom he served for some years in various capacities at Gesne and Kabul. He then became secretary or minister of finance to Ali ibn Shadan, prince of Balkh, but being dissatisfied with his treatment by the latter, he threw up his office and returned to Khorasan, which was then governed by the Seljuk prince Dawud ibn Mikalil, for his brother Tugrul Beg, the Tatar conqueror and first Seljuki sultan of Persia. Dawud received him with open arms, and recognising his eminent administrative faculties and his probity, gave him the sole charge of his son Alp Ashlan, bidding the latter look upon him as a parent and disobey not his counsels. The young prince became greatly attached to his governor, and on his succession, by the death, in A.D. 1064, of his uncle Tugrel, to the throne of Persia, he appointed Hassan his chief vizier, or prime minister, and confided to him the government of the empire, under the honorary title of Nizam-ul-Mulk, or regulator of the realm, by which he is historically known. The new vizier at once showed himself worthy of his master's confidence. During the twenty-eight years of his administration of the huge empire of the Seljuk sultans, he evinced the highest qualities, both as a governor and protector of the people, and as a patron of the liberal arts, and all oriental writers agree in styling him the greatest, wisest, and most beneficent minister who ever appeared in the East ranking him above even the heroic Barmecides, who seem to have been his great exemplars, inasmuch as Yeya ibn Khalid and his sons Fezel and Jafar held the seals of office for seventeen years only, before they succumbed to the jealous rancour of Harun er Rashid. He was especially devoted to the advancement of learning and literature, and to the encouragement of men of talent and erudition, and founded a number of colleges in Damascus, Baghdad, Nishapur, and other principal towns. He was the ornament of his age, writes Ibn Khan, and the poet El-Bekri says, Nizam-ul-Mulk was a precious pearl, fashioned of pure nobility by the merciful one. Nay, so goodly was it that the age knew not its worth, and the Creator, jealous for its honour, returned it to the shell. The first of Nizam's former schoolfellows to recall himself to his remembrance was Omar Khayyam, of whose life in the interim we have no record. But there is every reason to believe that he had passed it in quiet study and scientific and literary composition at Nishapur. The great vizier received his old comrade with the utmost cordiality, and remarking that a man of his merit ought to be attached to the service of the sultan, offered, 
in accordance with the compact before mentioned, to recommend him to the latter's favour, so that he might, like himself, attain to a post of honour and confidence about the royal person. But the Hakim, as Nizam ul mulk calls him, showing, apparently, that he had already acquired a reputation as a scientific and philosophical writer and teacher, declined his offer and replied that all he desired was to be allowed to live in a corner in the shadow of his friend's greatness and to devote himself to disseminating the benefits of science and praying for his, the vizier's, long life and fortune. And in this language he abode constant. When, says the Nizam in the document from which I have already quoted, I knew that he uttered without ceremony that which was in his heart. I appointed unto him every year, for his subsistence, twelve hundred mythkals of gold, charged upon the crown lands, or revenues, of Nishapur, whereupon he returned to his former way of life at his native city, and applied to perfecting himself in the sciences, especially in astronomy, in which he advanced to a high degree of proficiency. As for Hassan ibn Seba, that vile wretch, continues the Nizam, abode unknown, that is, quiet and in obscurity, during the reign of Alp Arshlan. But in the days of the power of the Sultan Melik Shah, and in the year A.D. 1072, when the latter became quit of the matter of Kerderd, and quieted the troubles excited by that prince's revolt in Nishapur, he, that is, Hassan Ibn Seba, came to me there. The vizier goes on to say that he received the newcomer with open arms, and on his claiming the fulfilment of their old compact, commended him to the sultan's favour, and procured him a post of honour and confidence. Some authorities say Chamberlain, and others Macebearer, about the latter's person. Thanks to his own natural parts, which seem to have been considerable, and to the support of his old comrade, Hassan quickly gained the sultan's ear, and became well-nigh all-powerful with him. But, like the miscreant, and son of a miscreant, as says the Nizam, he was, he used his newly acquired influence to endeavour, with the blackest perfidy, to bring his benefactor into disfavour with Melik Shah, thinking doubtless to supplant him in his office. Fortunately, however, the Sultan became aware of his treachery and infidelity, and was minded, says Nizam ul-Mulk, to punish him according to his deserts. But he, Hassan, being a reeling of the monarch's bounty, the latter's intent fell into delay, that is, he was reluctant to put it in execution. Meanwhile, Hassan, seeing that his affairs with the Sultan were in ill train, contrived to slink away from the court, and, eluding the troops sent in pursuit of him, made his way to Ray and Ispahan, and thence to Egypt, where he embraced the doctrines of the Ismailia, a Shia sect to which the Fatimite caliphs of Egypt belonged. Presently, returning secretly to Persia, and joining to himself certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, he, in the year 1090, possessed himself by treachery of the hill fort of Elamut, or Eagle's Nest, between Kazwin and Gilan in Persian Iraq, where he founded the infamous sect of the Assassins, and took the title of Sheikh ul Jebel, extending his power by successive conquests of the neighbouring country. All efforts of the Persian sovereigns failed to dislodge him, and his policy of private assassination, 
made his name a terror in every part of the East. This energetic politician of the Middle Ages, who would, doubtless, in our more settled times, have contented himself with the office of head-centre, hinchicist, labour-leader, or some such-like avocation, as should enable him to indulge his talent for mischief, and to live in idleness and luxury upon the ruin and misery of his dupes, survived to an advanced age, a notable instance of les bonheurs dans la crime, and died, full of years and villainy, in A.D. 1124, leaving his power to his successors, who reigned in his stead until A.D. 1256, when the robber dynasty was finally extinguished by Heliku, or Hulagu, the Tartar conqueror of Baghdad. It was but two years after the self-establishment of Ibn Sebar in his mountain lair, when his old friend and benefactor, whose goodness he had so shamefully misrequited, fell a victim to the intrigues of his enemies and enviers, and was dismissed by the prince who owed to him, if not his life, at least his throne, and the prosperity of his reign. Nor did he escape the usual fate of the disgraced eastern minister, but was, at the age of seventy-four, October the 15th, 1092, assassinated, some say by one of Ibn Sebar's sectaries, but the more probable opinion is that of Ibn Khan, who says, It is asserted that the assassin was suborned against Nizam-ul-Mulk by Malik Shah, who was tired of seeing him live so long, and coveted the numerous fiefs, which included his native province of Tus, held by him. It is some poor satisfaction to know that the dastardly prince survived his great minister and benefactor but thirty-five days, and therefore profited nothing by his crime. To return to Omar Khayyam, he appears to have contented himself with a liberal provision, twelve hundred mythculls of gold, about six hundred pounds a year of our money, and of course representing a much larger sum in the eleventh century, appointed him by Nizam ul-Mulk, and to have remained at Nishapur, in the peaceful pursuit of his scientific studies, until the accession of Melik Shah, when he repaired, probably at the vizier's instance, to the new sultan's capital, Merv, then one of the finest and most flourishing towns in Asia, and a place which, for the pleasantness of its situation, might vie with Nishapur itself, being surrounded with orchards and gardens, and intersected by four great canals, as well as some smaller ones, supplied by the river Murgab, or Birdwater, on which it stood. Moreover, it was then, under the mild and enlightened sway of the Seljuki sultans, or rather, of their wise minister, a capital seat of learning and culture, containing ten great libraries, as well as numerous colleges and three cathedral mosques. Here Kayam was appointed by Nizam ul-Mulk, head of the observatory founded by Melik Shah, that is, Astronomer Royal, and we learn from Abul Fida's annals that he was one, and according to other writers, the chief, of the eight astronomers employed by the Sultan in A.D. 1079 to effect the reform in the calendar introduced by him, and known from his forename, Jalaleddin, as the Tariq el-Jalali, or Jalalian era. After the death of his old schoolfellow and his royal patron, Kayam probably returned to Nishapur, the seat of Sultan Senjer, the third son of Melik Shah, and governor of Khorasan, under the suzerainty of his elder brothers, B. 
Berki Yadek and Mohammed, until the death of the latter in 1117, when he succeeded to the Seljuki Empire. According to Dalet Shah and other biographers, this prince, who is described by Oriental historians as a wise, just, generous, and enlightened sovereign, having inherited from his father and grandfather the love of learning and culture, and the liking for the society of men of talent and erudition which distinguished them, held Kayam in such favour and honour that he was accustomed, as a mark of his esteem, to seat the poet beside himself on the throne. Senger is known to have been a great lover of poetry, and a munificent patron of poets, amongst others, of the famous Enweri before mentioned, who succeeded Kayam in his favour. And it was doubtless his poetry that most commended the latter to him. But, be that as it may, Kayam must, either at Nishapur or at Merv, have devoted much of his time to scientific studies, as two mathematical works of his are still extant. That is, his demonstrations of the problems of algebra, published in 1851 with a translation by the late Herr F. Werpke, and a geometrical work, a treatise of the difficulties of Euclid's definitions, a copy of which is in the Leiden University Library. And the Turkish bibliographer, Haji Kalfa, in the skeleton catalogue of one or more great libraries at Damascus, known as his bibliographical lexicon, mentions a set of astronomical tables named after the Sultan Melik Shah, under whose auspices they were doubtless compiled by Kayam, whilst the poet himself, in the algebraical treatise above referred to, cites an arithmetical work composed by him in demonstration of the exactitude of the Indian methods of extracting square and cube roots. No copies of the two latter appear to be extant, and Kayam doubtless composed other astronomical works, to which, says Monsieur Reynard, in his prolegomena to his translation of Abulfida's geography, he seems to have attached little importance as he did not trouble himself to provide for the preservation of these writings, which would have made his glory. Unfortunately, continues Monsieur Reynard, Omar joined to his astronomical learning the love of poetry and pleasure. His poems have come down to us, but not so with his astronomical observations, and Oriental writers themselves seem to have no precise knowledge of the latter. The same may be said of his philosophical writings, which were probably copious and remarkable, as Persian and Arabic writers agree in extolling him as one of the greatest philosophers, even as they allow him to have been one of the foremost men of science of his age. However, Pache Monsieur Reynard, it seems to me that Kayam exercised a wise discretion in abandoning his scientific works, a class of mental productions more liable than perhaps any other to lose value and savour with age to the chances of time and fortune, and electing to rest his hopes of fame upon his poems, which have not disappointed his confidence, and have, in effect, made his name familiar to millions of readers, of whose very existence he could have had no prevision. Monsieur Reynard, however, only sums up the opinion generally expressed by Oriental historians and biographers, such as Dalet Shah, and the authors of the Heft Iklim, the Arish Kadeh, the Riyaz Ush Shuara, the Mejma ul Futcha, etc., who, 
whilst describing him as the king of philosophers, the sultan of scholars, the exemplar of the wise, agree in overpassing his poems with scant notice, and lamenting his tendency to free thinking, and his inclination to red-bud-coloured wine, and tulip-cheeked fair ones, to gardens and grottoes, what we should call chambering and wantonness. And this opinion of his contemporaries and successors is summarised in an Arabic biographical work called Tariq ul hukmah or History of the Philosophers, by El-Qadi El-Akram Jamaluddin El-Kifti, a distinguished man of letters who was vizier of Aleppo in the 13th century. According to Herr Werpke, who was the first to bring this document to light, the abridgment by Ez Zuzeni of the Tariq ul hukmah from which he quotes, is stated in the manuscript to have been completed in A.H. 647, A.D. 1249-50, or a year or less after El Kifti's death. As the extract published by Herr Werpke is the most important piece of information relative to Kayam extant, and affords, indeed, with a Wesayah of Nizam ul-Mulk already cited, practically the only considerable materials for the tracing of his life, I translate it here in extenso. Omar il-Qayyam, Imam of Khorasan, and the chief scholar of his time, knew the law of ancient Greece, and exhorted to the seeking of the One, the ruler, by the purification of the corporeal movements, or actions, for the cleansing of the human soul. Moreover, he enjoined to assiduous study of civic economy, Sisayer, Greek, Politeia, the regime of a perfect state, founded on love, according to the precepts of the ancient Greeks, for example, Plato's laws and republic. The latter-day Sufis have, indeed, fastened on somewhat of the externals of his poetry, and transferred, or adapted, them to their right, observance or canon, citing, or discussing, them in their assemblies, general and particular. But the internals, that is, the inner or essential sense thereof, are matters of liberal equity, that is, semble, natural or universal religion, and general principles of universal obligation. As the folk of his time found fault with his religious belief, and blazoned abroad the opinions which he would fain have concealed, he feared for his blood, that is, his life, and put a curb on his tongue and his pen. He made the pilgrimage to Mecca, rather for the sake of conformity than out of piety, and privily discovered impure, that is, unorthodox, ideas. When he arrived at Baghdad, on his return from Mecca, there flocked to him the folk of his way in ancient law, that is, those who prosecuted the study of Greek and other philosophy, or who were of his way of thinking. But he shut the door on them, with the shutting of the repenter, Nadim not of the boon companion, Nedim, and returned to his own city, that is, Nishapur, where he fell to going morning and evening to the place of worship, that is, to the mosque, and concealing his secrets, that is, his private opinions. And yet needs must they appear, that is, nevertheless they were generally known. He lacked of a peer or equal in the law of the stars and in philosophy, science generally, and in these matters he would have been quoted for a byword, that is, passed into a proverb, 
had he been but vouchsafed continence, that is, self-control. And there are extant of his light, fugitive or scurril, verses, the ambiguous wording of which betrayed his privy meaning and troubled the vein of his conception, or purpose, with hidden impurity. The above passage is evidently from the hand of a thoroughly orthodox Mohammedan, who was, notwithstanding the manifest horror in which he held the heterodox opinions of the great scholar of whom he spoke, and whose scientific works it is plain that he admired without reserve, anxious to judge fairly and impartially of his character, as far, at least, as religious bigotry would allow him to do so. We have seen how slightingly he speaks of Kayam's poems, and all historians and biographers, at whom I have been able to find any notice of him, treat what has proved to be his chief title to remembrance much in the same disdainful way. It will be noticed that El Kifti speaks of the great astronomer as Imam of Khorasan, and this opens up a point of question. The literal meaning of Imam is one whose leadership or example is to be followed, a pattern, a model, or exemplar. But the word is commonly used in the sense of either one, a leader, or fugleman of the people at public worship, generally some especially devout or learned, in religious matters, member of the congregation, and, by corruption, the manager, not a priest, of a mosque who receives its revenues and provides for the regular services, etc., or, two, one of the chiefs, such as Abu Henife, of the four great orthodox schools of theology or religious jurisprudence, or some other leading doctor of divinity, such as Muafek Eddin, already mentioned. In this latter sense, the title cannot have been applied to Qiyam, as he certainly never was a doctor of divinity, his ordinary style being Hakim, that is, a doctor or professor of science, especially medicine or philosophy, Hikmeh. But it is possible, though hardly probable, that he may have carried the prudent practice of conformity, recorded by El Kifti, so far as to have been chosen Imam in the first sense, that is, leader of the congregation at prayer. It is, however, more likely, and this would harmonise with the crabbed style of the passage from Tariq ul hukmah the author of which apparently aimed at showing his knowledge of the niceties of the Arabic language by employing words in uncommon and strained senses, that the word is here intended to convey that he was the great exemplar, or, as we should say, bright particular star, of his native land in the matter of learning. As for his conformity to orthodox Mohammedan practice, it can only be regarded as a matter of the commonest worldly prudence, excusable in a man of genius, who saw no reason for imperiling the work of his life and exposing himself to a gratuitous and unprofitable martyrdom at the hands of the narrow-minded and self-seeking bigots of his day, who were, after the manner of their kind, always ready to fall upon anyone whose opinions threatened their vested abuses, and the motley mob of the uncooked, to use his own favourite name for the unthinking vulgar, who were as sheep under their lead. In his case, too, there appears to have been a special cause for caution in a city like Nishapur, whose inhabitants bore much such a bad name for turbulence and intolerance as did those of the twin cities of Basura and Kufa, under the earlier caliphs of Baghdad, a poet called El-Muradi, 
quoted by the geographer Yakut el Himawi, A.D. twelve twenty nine, says of them, Stranger, beware lest thou go to Nishapur, for in that town neither merit nor lineage is a safeguard, and the respect due to humanity is ignored. And his testimony is amply corroborated by other writers, as well as by Kayam himself, who unsparingly lashes the vices of the folk of his time, evidently meaning his fellow citizens of Nishapur, whenever the opportunity offers. During the greater part of his life, his native city must, according to historians, have been in a chronic state of uproar and intestine discord, especially after the death of the wise and beneficent Nizam ul-Mulk, who passed much of his time at the capital of Khorasan, and seems to have possessed an especial faculty for soothing and appeasing popular troubles, and during the wars of the succession, which resulted in the establishment of Berkiyarek on the throne of his father, Melik Shah, when Nishapur was besieged and taken by that prince. We learn from the historian Ibn al-Athir that the city was afterwards a prey to internal dissensions for some three years' space, that is, from 1095 to 1097, and that the troubles culminated in a religious war which broke out in 1096 between the orthodox Sunni sects and the Karamiye heretics, so called from the name of their founder, Ibn al-Kiram, who revived the Egypto-Christian doctrine of anthropomorphism and applied it to Mohammedanism, and which resulted, after great loss of life on both sides, in the expulsion of the Karamiye and the destruction of their colleges. Again, in 1101, the Sultan, Beki Yarek, ordered the extermination of the Batiniye, or internalists, as the Ismailiye, or religious followers of Hassan ibn Seba, were now more generally called, from the hidden and spiritual meanings which they professed to discover in the literal words of the Koran. And there can be little doubt that the Orthodox party made the royal decree a pretext for the massacre, or at least the maltreatment, of those who were obnoxious to them for their free-thinking tendencies or their opposition to the arbitrary use of ecclesiastical power. To Kayam, in particular, this new religious crusade must, in all probability, have been peculiarly dangerous, as his fellow citizens are not likely to have forgotten his early connection with the chief of the assassins. And some of the opinions known to be held by him, and expressed in his poems, bore a suspicious, or at the least, a colourable resemblance to the tenets of the Batiniye, who professed, for instance, that all things apparent were merely symbols, that the world was eternal, without beginning or ending, and that time was infinite, that paradise and hell were mere figures of speech, and that the resurrection was purely spiritual, death being the real resurrection for everyone, doctrines evidently borrowed, in a more or less garbled form, from the Vedantic philosophy of ancient India. It is, indeed, difficult to imagine how the poet can have escaped the myriad dangers which must have beset so independent and courageous a thinker in a time and situation of exceptional disturbance and peril. And there can be little doubt that, but for the protection of his patron, Shah Senjer, and the fortunate circumstance that the latter was, during his whole life, in constant residence at Nishapur, which he preferred to any other dwelling place, Kayam would inevitably have fallen a victim to the ignorance and intolerance of the populace, whose prejudices were shocked by the freedom of his life and opinions, 
or to the private malice of the Sufis and the clerical party, whose hypocritical tricks and abuses he lashed with such unsparing satire. If the powerful patronage enjoyed by Qayyam was, as we cannot doubt, the means of saving him from actually becoming a sacrifice to popular passion and theological jealousy, it would seem, from the complaints of exile and misery suffered which he makes in his quatrains, that he must have been forced, from time to time, to seek safety in flight, and it is not unlikely, indeed, that he not only, on the disgrace and death of Nizam-ul-Mulk, lost the comfortable provision made for him by that statesman, but shared, in some measure, the fate which commonly overtakes the whole family and connections of a fallen minister or favourite in the East. Probably he was, for a time, exiled from his native land, and it is perhaps to this period of enforced strangerhood that we may assign his pilgrimage to Mecca, as well as the other wanderings, possibly including a visit to India, then, in great part, under the sway of the Gesnevide princes, the nominal suzerains of the five first Seljuki sultans of Persia, of which he speaks in his poems. Unfortunately, we have no definite information as to this, and it is well-nigh impossible to found any reasonable hypothesis upon the statements contained in his quatrains, in consequence of the illogical Eastern usage, which arranges an author's poetical works, not in the order of their composition, or in accordance with their tenor, but in mechanical alphabetical sequence, according to the letters which end the rhyme words of the various pieces. It is probable, however, that the latter years of his life were passed in comparative comfort, under the patronage of Shah Senjur, in his native city of Nishapur, and he appears, notwithstanding the troubles and trials of which he complains, to have attained to a patriarchal age. The date of his birth is nowhere mentioned, and here again we are hampered by the singular usage, in vogue with Oriental biographers, of recording, as a matter of course, the dates of the deaths only of their heroes, and leaving the dates of their births and their ages, for the most part, unmentioned, as of no importance. For example, the most considerable work of the kind in the Arabic language, the great biographical dictionary of Shem Sedin Abul Abbas Ahmed ibn Khan, is entitled Kitab Wafiit ul Ayan, the book of the demises of the eminent, and gives the dates of birth and ages of the persons recorded, when it does so, only incidentally. Kayam's death is pretty generally agreed to have occurred in the year 1123 to 1124, A.H. 517, and he himself states that he had lived a hundred years. This statement, which we might otherwise be tempted to disregard as a poetical exaggeration, is indirectly confirmed by Nizam ul-Mulk, who in his Wesaya expressly states that Kayam was of the same age as himself. Hembisin Imen, the fellow or like in age of myself, a variation of the ordinary Hemsin Imen, my age fellow, and the correctness of this assertion I see no reason to doubt. Nizam ul-Mulk was born in 1018, and we may therefore assume, upon the authority of this double piece of evidence, that his old schoolfellow Kayam was about a hundred and five years old, more or less, at the time of his death. 
He was buried at Nishapur, and his tomb is still shown without the city, where it stands in the midst of the ruins caused by the Tatar invasion of the next century. It is, says the Russian traveller Kanikov, a ponderous building of unburnt brick, without ornament or inscription, date or epitaph of any kind, but it probably covers the actual burial place of the poet, as the inhabitants of Nishapur still pride themselves upon their illustrious fellow citizen, and it is, therefore, no matter for surprise that the tradition of the site of his tomb should have been faithfully preserved among them. I close this scanty sketch of Kayam's life with a translation from the Persian text, as given by Hyde in his work on the religion of the ancient Persians, and stated by him to be an extract from the preface to a manuscript copy of Kayam's poems, containing somewhat more than two hundred quatrains, of the well-known anecdote concerning his grave. Quoth Nizami Uruzi of Samarkand, one of Kayam's disciples, who was himself the most learned man of his time, I chanced to meet Kwaje Omar in bulk, and had a session with him, and in course of talk he said, my grave shall be in a place where every spring the north wind shall be rose-scattering on it. At this wonder overcame me, and I said in myself, This man speaketh not idly. And behold, when, some time after his death, it betided me to pass by Nishapur, I sought out his grave, and found that it was hard by the wall of a garden, and fruit-bearing trees, such as pomegranates, stretched forth their branches without the garden wall, in such wise that the blossoms were strewn on his tomb, and it appeared not among them. When I saw this, I marvelled at Kwajer Omar's saying, and betook myself to his house, where, when I came and inquired, it was told me that his wish was on this wise. End of section 1